Hello, true crime friends, and welcome to True Crime in Academia. I'm your host, Mary DePippi. First of all, I hope you are all having a great week so far. If not, that sucks. I'm sorry, and I hope it gets better. So for those of you who don't know about True Crime in Academia, I actually started it out as a blog, and now we're here as a podcast. So, you know, we're moving up in the world a little bit. So true crime in academia is basically what it sounds. I will be discussing true crime cases that involve students, faculty, professors, things like that of universities and colleges, whether they've committed the crimes themselves or the crimes were committed against them. Some cases I may discuss what colleges and universities can do to maybe prevent some of these situations from happening again. So with that, let's get into our first case. Um, This first case was the actual first blog post that I did for True Crime and Academia when it was in blog form. I wanted to do this case first again because the victim's from New Jersey, which I am also from. Um, So it just, it really tugged at my heartstrings. This is also an unsolved case. And I'm sure like most of you that unsolved cases probably really tug at your heartstrings just because you know that the family hasn't gotten the justice that they deserve and that the person who did it is probably still out there which is also very frustrating so case number one for episode number one of true crime in academia is the disappearance and murder of tammy joe zawicki Real quick, though, before we get into this episode, I just wanted to shout out to Robert. Hey, Robert. I'm sorry. I don't remember your last name. Um, But you had commented on this case when it was a blog. And you corrected me in the fact that Lonnie Beerbrot, who which we will discuss, was cleared. But I will explain in this episode why technically we are both wrong. But again, thank you so much for pointing that out. And thank you for listening. So with that, let's get into it. On September 1st, 1992, a man in a truck pulled off to the side of the road on Interstate Highway 44 to secure some tools he had in the back that were moving around during his trip. He looked off into the trees and noticed something strange, something covered in a blanket and bound with duct tape. He immediately knew it was a body. The man drove to the local police station and brought an officer to the body. A young blonde-haired, green-eyed woman with glasses was found inside. That body was that of Tammy Zawicki, a senior at Grinnell College who had gone missing nine days ago. Tammy Jo Zawicki was born on March 13, 1971, in Lebanon County, Pennsylvania. Her family moved around a lot during her childhood, living in Texas, Michigan, and South Carolina, where Tammy finished middle school and high school. After graduation, Tammy and her family moved to New Jersey. Friends and family stated that Tammy was a responsible, good student, and outgoing. She was also an amateur photographer, soccer player, and worked on her college's newspaper. On the afternoon of August 23, 1992, 21-year-old Tammy Jo Zawicki and her younger brother Darren said goodbye to their parents, Joanne and Hank, 
at the Pennsylvania Turnpike entrance. The Zwickys had been visiting family in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for the last few days of summer vacation before the spring semester started. See you at Christmas were the last words Hank and Joanne ever said to their daughter. After dropping Darren off at Northwestern University, that's in Evanstown, Illinois, for those of you who don't know. I definitely don't know until I read this case. Uh, Tammy stayed over at a friend's house who lived close by. The next day in the early afternoon, she headed out for Grinnell College, which is in Grinnell, Iowa, which again, I also didn't know until looking at this case. She would be starting her senior year. Tammy was going to be completing her double major in Spanish and art history, which is ex- like super impressive if you ask me. I mean, I don't know anyone that would be finishing a double major today within four years. But I mean, clearly Tammy was very smart and very disciplined and dedicated to her studies that she was even able, you know, to do this. So I think that's super impressive. And especially since the other major is a language. So I just think that's, again, super, super impressive. Sidebar. I think we need to start learning Spanish and French in this country. I don't understand why we wouldn't want to be able to talk to our neighbors to the north and south of us, especially since we have a good amount of people who speak those languages that live here. You know, and just for those of you who don't know, there is no official language of the United States. So, you know, if you're thinking that, oh, English is our official language, that's not true. But I digress. Sorry for the sidebar. Anyway, according to 26 witnesses, Tammy was last seen on Interstate Highway 80 by mile marker 83, which is by the exit for Utica. Darren stated that Tammy's white 1985 Pontiac T-1000 had been overheating and the two had to stop multiple times because of it. Before she left, however, Darren had checked her car and it seemed to be running fine. The eyewitnesses recalled seeing, last seeing Tammy pulled over on the highway between 3.10 and 4 p.m. Most described seeing her with a particular tractor trailer during this time. The tractor trailer had brown and yellowish-orange horizontal stripes on it. You know, this is a situation that happens all of the time. Sadly, you know, we see someone's car who breaks down on one of the major highways you know, I'm always like, what happened? You know, because I'm a nosy little Nelly. But, you know, I always hope for the best for that person. But we also have cell phones. So it's a lot easier for us today to be able to call for help. During the early 90s, cell phones were barely a thing. Barely anyone had one. So if you had car trouble, you were literally stuck until a good Samaritan could bring you to a phone booth or call for help or a tow truck for you. You know, it could be hours before you got any help. Now, in Tammy's situation, there's 26 people who have seen her. And I don't understand. I I mean, these 26 people from the police reports said that they stopped to help her. And part of me is wondering if that if they were actually all telling the truth, because I feel like maybe about five of them might have actually pulled over to help her. I think the other... (laughs) 21 people may have just seen her and wished they would have pulled over to help. But then again, I don't know for sure. But as some of you may know, if true crime friends, you know that eyewitness testimony can be unreliable, especially in these situations where you're having to recall something that you normally wouldn't remember. 
The following day, a state trooper found Tammy's car at the same location Tammy was last seen. He ticketed it as abandoned and had it towed. That same day, Joanne Zowicki, Tammy's mom, called the police to report her daughter missing. She had not heard from Tammy and was supposed to call the night before, which was when she was scheduled to arrive at college. At first, she blew it off as Tammy just arriving late and didn't want to call to wake anyone up. But when she didn't call the next morning, Joanne knew something was wrong. She called Tammy's friends and none of them had seen or heard from her. Some sources said that her friends wrote on the message board they had in the common room telling Tammy to call her mom. She called the school and they confirmed that Tammy had not arrived. Tammy was supposed to photograph the athletes that morning, something she never would have missed, especially without telling someone. And she never showed. The police in both Illinois and Iowa initially told the Zwickys not to worry. She probably ran off with a boyfriend and forgot to call. But Tammy didn't have a boyfriend, nor would she run off without telling anyone. Even after her car had been towed, the police insisted that there were no signs of foul play and that she would just turn up soon. Understandably, the Zwickys were frustrated. They were told to contact a missing persons organization who advised them to get their story out on the news. Students at both Northwestern University and Grinnell College handed out flyers and volunteered to help search for Tammy. Three days later, the police finally announced that they would begin searching for Tammy. They also admitted that they now suspected foul play because most of her belongings were still in the car. If she was running off with a boyfriend, why wouldn't she bring her clothes? It was also confirmed that her Canon 35mm camera was missing from her car. And I'll explain later why this might be important, or at least it's a theory that I have, but we'll get there. So a search was on foot and helicopters combed the areas where Tammy was last seen, but it was no use. First of all, I can't imagine being in Tammy's parents' shoes. I can't imagine being filled with that fear and worry to then just be told she must have just run off with a boyfriend and she'll just turn up. I would be furious, furious, if an officer was trying to tell me about my own daughter in order to calm me down. I don't understand why that was the first thing this officer chose to say to Mrs. Wiki. That is, it's not even comforting. It's not helpful. It's just completely insensitive and assuming, which is not something anyone should do when they're talking to a concerned parent of a missing person. It's just not good etiquette, not not as an officer and just not as a human. And the fact that they changed their story as to whether or not there was foul play, again, I think they just jumped to a conclusion without ever really looking into it. I understand, you know, each department has their own restrictions for when to file a missing persons report. I understand that. I know that there are different uh, procedures depending on the age of the person. You know, for example, children and elderly are always immediately reported, you know, but everyone else has to wait 24 to 72 hours. I understand, you know, there are cases where people go missing on purpose, but this wasn't the case with Tammy. I think personally, it's more worth it to expend some extra police time and effort and money, whatever, you know, 
to find people who are either, you know, just out late and forgot to check in or, you know, if it's a case where someone doesn't want to be found, if it's due to a domestic violence or abuse situation, you know, if you found the person, then maybe charges can be brought up against the abuser, you know, or things like that, where, you know, this person could be given resources to get out of that situation. But regardless, I would rather the police, you know, quote unquote, waste time in trying to find those people than to have them do what they did in this case because they didn't take it seriously in the beginning, you know, and I don't know if the police having acted sooner could have saved Chammy, you know, and depending on when she actually died, I think it could have, they could have possibly saved her, but you know, it just because now evidence is being compromised. You know, the longer you wait for a missing person, or at least to search for a missing person, the harder it is to find them, sadly, because, you know, leads run cold, evidence gets destroyed or washed away or compromised by the elements. You know, again, like I said, it's just frustrating that the search wasn't even carried out until her parents went to the media for help. I don't always like to give the media so much credit just because they can be harmful. But this is one of those times where the media really helped in this case because it at least got the police to take it seriously. Guys, let me tell you about my friend Mandy. She makes some of the most beautiful crocheted goods and decorations I have truly ever seen. The holidays are just around the corner, so you're either going to be looking for that super unique gift or that super special ornament or decoration for your home. Do yourself a favor. Go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram. That's M-A-N-D-E-E, Made It on Facebook and Instagram, and slide into her DMs, trust me, you are just going to love everything she has to offer. I already have a few pumpkins from her. I have a really nice crocheted headband that keeps me warm in the winter. And of course, my very, very favorite Coraline doll. So if you're looking for cool decorations, or if you're looking for that super special gift, go to Mandy Made It on Facebook and Instagram to order now. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. On September 1st, 1992, Tammy's body was discovered along Interstate Highway 44, or I-44, in Lawrence County, Missouri, by a man who has never been named, but had pulled over to secure some loose tools that were just rolling around in the back of his truck. This was nine days after she went missing. Her body was found wrapped in a red blanket bearing a trunking company name, Kentworth, and it was held together with duct tape. 
Tammy was stabbed eight times and the autopsy concluded that she was sexually assaulted. She was wearing a blue shirt with her high school's logo and shorts. It was confirmed that in addition to her camera, her purse, her wallet, this musical watch that she had with an umbrella on its face and it played raindrops keep falling on my head and a patch bearing her high school soccer team that was on her shorts were also missing. She was also wearing lacy underwear and a pink bra with the word love on it. However, Tammy's family and closest friends all stated that she didn't own these particular pieces of underwear. She was more of a tomboy and didn't wear pink or lacy things like that. And for me, this was probably one of the most chilling details of this case because not only was Tammy kidnapped, she was sexually assaulted and then eventually killed. But the thought that whoever took her possibly made her wear these. Oh my God, it makes me want to puke. That is so repulsive. I just, that poor girl. I do have a theory though, based off of the items that were stolen. I think that Tammy believed that this person who killed her was going to drive her to Grinnell College. So hear me out. In this case, because, you know, of the things that are missing, again, she's got her purse, her wallet. You know, I know the watch doesn't seem like anything. She probably wore it all the time. But she had her camera. Those three things, if I was her in her situation, I would have brought with me. Because if you remember, she was supposed to be taking photos of the athletes the next morning. So she just probably grabbed all of the things that she knew that she needed for the next day until she could get someone or a tow truck to go out and get her car. So that's my theory. I think that that's where Tammy thought that she was going. I don't think that the person manhandled her to get her into his car. I think she went in willingly. And I I mean, I know cameras are expensive and that might be something someone would want to steal or maybe had stolen after the fact from her car but to me this just makes more sense again I have no facts to support that that's actually what happened this is just my guess based off of what was missing and what witnesses had seen so the autopsy reported that of the eight stab wounds one was a defensive wound on her arm the remaining seven were in a circle around her heart There were also signs of strangulation on her neck made by some sort of necklace, but it is not confirmed what Tammy's actual cause of death was, or at least from what I've researched. I have not been able to find a definitive cause of death, but I'd imagine it had something to do with the injuries from the stab wounds. When I first heard that the stab wounds were in a circular formation around her heart, I initially thought that maybe it was because Tammy was fighting off her attacker. But when I thought more about it, I realized that that could just, that's just highly unlikely to create a full circle under those circumstances. Like I could understand like if there were seven stab wounds around the area of her heart, not necessarily in a perfect circle, you know, just because getting in the mind of this jackass, you know, if you're stabbing someone, you're, you're aiming for the vital organ. You're aiming for the heart. And if she's struggling, it's going to be difficult to get 
to hit the same spot every time. Again, since it was in a perfect circle, that just seems not likely. It seems just more, to me, deliberate than by chance. And I don't know if this was supposed to be a signature or, or what. I don't know. It's it's unclear, but it's definitely a strange circumstance. When her body was found, there were definite signs of decomposition. Mercifully, dental records were used to identify the body as Tammy Zawicki, because otherwise they would have had to call in a family member. And I can't imagine having to see a loved one whose body is decomposing like to see them in that state like that just has to be extremely traumatizing to have to go through so thank god that they used the dental records to confirm who she was the pathologist ruled that tammy had been killed between four to seven days prior to her body's discovery this means that she was alive for at least three days (sighs) i don't even want to imagine what she was going through during those three days, I. Oh, oh. Police spoke with over 60 witnesses who saw Tammy that fateful day. 26 of them, like I said before, said they had pulled over to help. But again, I don't know how none of them were able to help her. Someone make it make sense. How did 26 people pull over and offer to help her? And not one of them is able to help her. I don't understand. Now, what is interesting is that a trucker named Robert Bullington had reported that he had seen a girl matching Tammy's description get into the tractor trailer of a man he only knew by the name of Jerry, who he had met at a rest stop and was communicating via like the walkie-talkie or radio systems that they have in trucks. And according to Robert, he had asked Jerry if the girl was all right, and to which Jerry just replied that she was. So Robert didn't really think much of it and hadn't spoken to him since when he talked to police he didn't have any other information other than his name was jerry and he had nebraska plates so you meet this guy at a truck stop or at a rest stop and you can't give a basic description of what he looks like i mean again i'm you know memory Witness memory, witness testimony is not always reliable. I get that. So maybe he just didn't want to give a description that could match anyone because that could cause some trouble with the police. You know, if you have a basic description that matches a good number of people, then you're going to have people calling in saying their husbands, brothers, sons, whatever, that you know, that they think that it's this person who killed her when... You know, it's it's not. So if that was a reason, I guess I get it. There also isn't any evidence tying this Bullington guy to the case. But I just find his story to be a little suspicious. But again, if he is telling the truth and just has a really shitty memory, it, you know, would be suspicious that Tammy was getting into the cabin of this guy jerry who was the last person most likely to have seen her because they believe they believe that this was around one o'clock in the morning which is again hours after tammy was seen by the you know the 60 witnesses who placed her on the highway 
between three and four. So who knows? Other witnesses mentioned seeing a tractor trailer pulled over and the driver watching as Tammy looked under the hood of her car. Out of all the people seen with Tammy that day, one sticks out. Alani Beerbrot, which I think is how you pronounce his name. I have not found it pronounced any other way than that. Lonnie was born on June 29, 1960 in Orlando, Florida. Not much is known about his childhood or the nature of his upbringing, but we do know that Lonnie was a member of the U.S. Army before he became a trucker. In the 80s, however, he served time for committing two armed robberies and was sentenced to three 21 or no 20 year consecutive terms. So three 20 year consecutive terms he was supposed to serve and was described by the Courier Post as a violent felon. For those of you who don't know, the Courier Post is a news source or a newspaper rather in Cam- from Camden, New Jersey. In 1990, he was paroled and released from prison. At the time of Tammy's murder, Lonnie was living just a few miles away from where Tammy's body was found. I believe it was about like 30 minutes away, like 15 to 30 minutes, a drive anyway. Lonnie claimed that he was on vacation during the time of Tammy's death, but eyewitnesses place a man matching his description and the truck that he drove on the day of her disappearance. Although... Lonnie was never arrested for Tammy's murder. The evidence against him is compelling. The red blanket that was used to cover Tammy's body, you know, that had the name Kenworth on it, that was the trucking company that Lonnie worked for during the time. Again, like I said, he also only lived like 30 minutes away from her body was dumped, which the location from where her body was dumped to where she was last seen, that's about like a six hour time difference or travel distance. So, which is crazy since she was alive for at least three days. Again, I can't even imagine what she went through during that time. Another piece of evidence is that when they did want to look at his truck, the police rather, Lonnie had conveniently had it clean and sold soon after Tammy went missing. He was brought in to provide a DNA sample and was quote unquote cleared and was able to live out the rest of his life until he died in Peru, Illinois, on June 17th, 2002, from a ba- his battle with cancer. There is a officer named Martin McCarthy. He worked with the Illinois State Police during the time of Tammy's case. He feels that Lonnie Beerbrot was, like, the legwork to prove his guilt was never done. According to him, he believes that Lonnie's DNA wasn't properly tested due to the small amount that they had from the crime scene. Basically, the DNA sample that they had was too small to test, and therefore they couldn't get a full profile on it. But they went ahead and cleared him anyway, even though the test wasn't done to the standards it should have been. I can't understand why... You would just clear a person when you know that the test isn't being done properly unless you're incredibly lazy or you know him and want him cleared. I mean, that it's so frustrating at how careless that decision was. And McCarthy also believes that her case was compromised 
when the Illinois Police Task Force and the FBI team assigned to her case were disbanded only a few months after her body was found. Which I understand, you know, if leads run cold, you got to do what you got to do. But it just, there are so many missteps here that could have been avoided. And maybe they would have figured out who killed Tammy. I don't know. Other suspects in Tammy's case included a long-haul driver, now convicted serial killer, named Bruce Mendelham, who is tied to at least 11 murder cases, but was cleared in Tammy's case, and another serial killer named Clark Perry Baldwin. In 2020, Baldwin was actually ruled out as a suspect due to advancements in DNA testing. Yay, science and technology for the win. I mean, I know it told us who didn't do it, but I can't imagine. Well, I can't imagine how much better this case would have been handled if they would have had access to the science and technology we have today. But we can't turn back time. So here we are. As of today, there are no suspects in Tammy's case. The Illinois State Police believe that new DNA testing can help police find a new suspect and hopefully some justice for Tammy and her family. If you or anyone you know has information about Tammy's case, I have resources listed in the description below that you can contact and they'll be able to send your tips through. And that is all I have for you. On the disappearance and murder of Tammy Jones Zawicki. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. It was really interesting to go back down memory lane and rehash this case. All of my sources are listed in the description below, as well as a few of the podcasts that I listen to as sources for this case. So definitely check those out. Please remember to go to ivorytowerboilerroom.com and hit the donate button so that way we can keep giving you this awesome content. And as always, thank you for listening. Your support means a lot to me, especially from those of you who were reading the blog and now you're listening to the podcast. I mean, if it wasn't for you guys reading in the first place, I wouldn't have made the jump to make this a podcast. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And for the new people listening, thank you as well. I hope you all enjoy your week. Stay safe out there and I will see you next week. True Crime in Academia is an Ivory Tower Boiler Room podcast. Members of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team include Andrew Rimby, Executive Director, Mary DePippi, Chief Contributor, and Jaron Usta, Marketing Director. To support the Ivory Tower Boiler Room and its podcasts like True Crime in Academia, go to our website, www.ivorytowerboilerroom.com, and click on Donate. A special thank you to Anne-Sophie Anderson, composer and performer of the song Scorpio that you heard in the introduction. As always, thank you for your support.